Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today's interview is with Azra Akshamya. She's an artist and architectural historian, and she co-edited a book titled Design to Live, Everyday Inventions from a Refugee Camp. It looks at different innovations made by people living inside a refugee camp in Jordan. And in this interview with NPR Scott Simon, Akshamya uses this phrase multiple times. She says people living in these camps use these designs to carve out a form of life. They carve out a way of living. It's such a simple but telling way of describing what it takes to live in one of these camps and still dream of something better. Here's the interview. There are now more than 80 million refugees around the world, according to the United Nations. Many who live in refugee camps where conditions can be cramped and mean and pitiable. But if you go through Design to Live, Everyday Inventions from a Refugee Camp, a new book in Arabic and English from the MIT Press, You can see the ingenuity and spirit inside the Azraq refugee camp in Jordan and marvel and be inspired. Syrian refugees living there and creating gardens, ovens, baby swings, and chess sets. People living and, in a way, thriving. Azra Akshamya is one of the editors of the book. She's an artist and architectural historian and founding director of the MIT Future Heritage Lab. She joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. In many ways, the designs are just a testament to the human spirit, aren't they? They really are. When you go to these camps, it's such a desperate environment. It is in the middle of the desert, surrounded by literally nothing. That There's not a single tree. Uh, in the summer, it reaches around 118 degrees Fahrenheit. And in that unbearable heat, these people are living and thriving and producing uh, incredible uh, designs and works of art to really create and carve out uh, forms of life that are not just possible, but also to imagine better forms of life as they can be. Yeah. Let me ask you about something I, I think I've seen in a few places around the world, vertical gardens. And I, did, I didn't quite understand until reading your book. They are carefully crafted to, I'll say, rise above the rules. Exactly. So in these camps, you know, the way camps are conceived is usually as a temporary settlement. Of course, we know that this is not the reality. Many people end up living there for more than 10 years um, or, or even longer. But the local government's regulations don't want people to you know, consider themselves um, steady. And for that reason, uh, they don't allow um, things to become permanent. And, and part of that logic is not allowing gardening and planting and, and making people not feeling kind of taking literally roots in, in a certain area. So uh, planting in the camp for many uh, years was not allowed. Um, it is also... Mm-hmm for water scarcity purposes, of course. Um, And for that reason, people started planting uh, along the walls of their uh, Mm -hmm. sheds, of their caravans, using plastic containers, yogurt, uh, scraps, uh, food packages to uh, plant seeds and from, you know, places where they are coming from and also to be able to cook and um, remind themselves of the home cooking and and places where they come from. And pigeon breeding is uh, a passion for many Syrians. And they manage it in the camp, don't they? That was a big surprise for me. When I first saw the pigeons, I didn't understand what was going on because I I was not um, familiar with that custom. 
But in fact, this is a local sport, both in Jordan and in Syria, and it's really important for people. And um, it's uh, it's a luxurious sport, actually. It can cost up to, you know, a very good pigeon can cost up to $5,000 uh, in cities like Damascus or in Amman, uh, you know, people have these um, in the evening, there are all these sport occasions where uh, pigeon holders uh, letting them fly and occasionally they also kind of manage to get each other's pigeon. And you have something like this happening in the camp too, but of course in a very improvised ways. So uh, some of the designers will use, again, scraps of um, core relief items like uh, the... the uh, ready-made caravans, an old door, uh, pieces of furniture, uh, pieces of wood to create landing platforms on their sheds for pigeons to land. Yeah, it's just a wonderful way to kind of claim to your tradition and and carve out that life uh, worth living, uh, at least through these kinds of continuations of traditions as much as possible. And uh, families and individuals have constructed some beautiful coffee and tea sets, um, which really touched my heart. It reminded me of when I've been a reporter in, in refugee camps, and, and it's just very important to many of the people you meet that they give hospitality to you and to each other. But what is also touching about this is that, you know, there are no spaces for social gathering um, because um, you know there are minimal uh, provisions for people uh, on in displacement, so everyone, every family gets maybe one shelter, and everyone lives in the same space. And sometimes, if people move away, occasionally there will be a shelter empty. And in one of these empty shelters, uh, a whole community of people kind of claimed it and created this social space where they can host guests um, and. Um, uh, you know, bring guests, basically bring foreign people to to host them. Yeah. And to facilitate that, one of the men created um, this wonderful coffee set using recycled um, um, food cans. Yeah. But I think it's also important not to exoticize these uh, inventions. I mean, this is brutal reality, right? And, and yeah. for me, uh, you know, what's so powerful about them is that they visualize on the one hand this... Um, Ingenuity of human spirit, yes, and resilience. But on the other hand, really, what is missing? Because people invent what is not provided. And what is not provided are basic um, ideas of what constitutes human, essential human needs. Yeah. I guess there are more than 30,000 people in the Osrock camp. Many for a number of years. And, and the more intricate and engaging the design, the more it raises in your mind a question, when when does living in that refugee camp become a way of life? The first idea was to call the book Book of Life and have one book of problems. Mm -hmm. But we had this debate of whether sh we should call it Book of Life because our colleagues were saying, well, this is not what life should be. This is not how life is. This is an artificially created uh, environment and, and context in um, which creates dependencies, uh, victimization of people. Uh, it's a prison, right? And should this be even called life? Um, so we play now in the final version of, of the book title, Designed to Live, 
with this notion of what, what is life, right? And we also use the notion of life as a structure for the book. So the designs show us how refugees claim their own agencies in these circumstances that absolutely deprive them of, of it. Azra Akshamya is uh, one of the editors of Design to Live, Everyday Inventions from a Refugee Camp. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott.